Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, all of it brought to you by Lending Club. Right now, you can go to LendingClub.com slash martini, check your rate in minutes, and borrow up to $40,000. LendingClub.com slash martini. Much more on that in just a moment. Jim, uh, we're getting a little bit of a late start today. It's a very proud day in the Garrity home. You are at a commencement ceremony. Uh, that's the good part. Uh, the bad part is how long it took. What do you want to share with our listeners? Sure. I just want to say apologies for anyone who's getting this a little later than usual. It was the elementary school graduation. Now, I know a lot of folks in conservative circles might say, you know, ah, too many graduation ceremonies. These kids are being raised like snowflakes. Everybody gets a trophy. Blah, you know. So first of all, it was the, not everyone got a trophy. There was a lot of awards handed out, but not everyone got them. My son was recognized for excellence in some areas, so I have no complaints about that. And so I just want to say congratulations to all the kids there. I will point out, though, that you know, as it went on, it, I think it was put on by the same firm that uh, does the Oscars, Greg. Uh, <laughs> musical number, montage. In fact, I, mean, I, I don't want to say drag, but like three, three classes did graduate sixth grade in addition to the ones during the ceremony. But beyond that, there was one kid. Yeah, on the one hand, congratulations. It's wonderful to be achiever. This one kid is on student council. One kid gets recognized. The same kid gets recognized for highest grades. Then later on, they're doing languages. And apparently, this kid speaks seven languages. Uh, and then apparently, they give him a special award for quoting pure philosophers and literature and casual conversation. Turns out the kid is Pete Buttigieg. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know why, but for some reason, he just collected four different uh, awards from the authenticity woods elementary school no seri- more seriously congratulations to all the kids that it ate up a chunk of my day but hey my hands are tired from applauding from all the wonderful kids getting all the wonderful awards so kudos to them well and kudos to you for clapping because i've been in situations similar to that uh, before jim uh my kids are younger than yours but when you don't realize how many kids at first are going to be recognized the first few you're like all right nice job kid i don't know who you are but that sounds pretty impressive and then by the time they get to the 65th kid you're just like I'm not saying that I yelled at the crowd, hey, I, I applauded for all your kids. You better applaud for my kid. But, uh, I think that the G's are only about a third of the way through the alphabet. So, yeah. By the way, the Authenticity Elementary School like school board is probably listening to this and getting ready to, all right, we'll take it out on his younger brother next year. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, let's move on to our good martini now. And, Jim, this is admittedly not the greatest good martini of all time, but we'll Take what we can get from the American Medical Association, especially compared to, oh, roughly a decade ago. This is from The Hill. The nation's largest doctors group on Tuesday voted against a measure that would have dropped its decades-long opposition to single-payer health care proposals. The American Medical Association's House of Delegates, didn't even know they had that, voted 53% to 47% against the measure, but adopted a slate of proposals to shore up the Affordable Care Act. The AMA is part of a coalition of insurers, drug companies, and hospital groups aggressively lobbying against Medicare for All proposals in Congress. But Tuesday's vote shows that AMA's members are not united in the group's overall opposition to single-payer. The effort to drop the decades-old opposition was largely led by medical students, according to Modern Healthcare. Protesters demonstrated outside the group's annual meeting in Chicago over the weekend, demanding the AMA drop its opposition to single-payer. Instead, the AMA said it supports building on the Affordable Care Act. 
you got to love this quote. Since the ACA was enacted into law in 2010, millions of Americans have gained health insurance. The policy question now is how to improve the law to ensure even more, said AMA President Dr. Barbara McEnany. We need policies to make coverage more affordable for millions of Americans, both in the premiums they pay as well as their cost-sharing responsibilities. So, Jim, it's good that uh, even though they're they're divided, the group is officially opposed to what Bernie Sanders and a lot of other uh, liberals running for uh, president and Congress are pushing right now. But the AMA is not exactly uh, dealing with a sterling track record here. You've got a group that uh, 10 years ago promised us alongside the Obama administration everything would be cheaper and better. That clearly didn't happen, and this is an admission of that. And so they're still trying to figure out how to make things more accessible and more affordable. Yeah, and you know, we must talk about something that really still sticks in my craw. If I remember, their support for Obamacare was pretty full-throated. There, oh, there yeah. was not a lot of caveats or we think this bill does some good, but we have some concerns, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're a doctor and, you know, look, maybe you voted for Obama, maybe you didn't. But I would like to think that at some point in 2009, whatever warm and fuzzy feelings you had towards the president would evaporate after the president in a press conference said, right now, doctors, a lot of times are forced to make decisions based on the fee payment schedule that's out there. So if your child has a bad sore throat or repeated sore throats, the doctor may look at the reimbursement system and say to himself, you know what, I make a lot more money if I take this kid's tonsils out. Now that may be the right thing to do, but I'd rather have that doctor making those decisions just based on whether you need your kid's tonsils out or whether it might make more sense. Maybe they have allergies. Maybe they have something else that would make a difference. Now, in this statement, President Obama speculated that there was some sort of sinister black market for kids' tonsils. (laughs) Apparently, it's tied into that international smuggling ring run by the Tooth Fairy. And so I did, no, find me a doctor who's like, this kid's tonsils are fine, but I'm taking them out anyway. They just look too good, too tempting. I got to get, you know, I'm going to do unnecessary surgery because it's awesome and I'll make money. No. Has it ever existed, I suppose? Is that a primary problem in our uh, medical system? I don't think so. I think probably if you're going to make a you know, probably a more related one is the practice of so-called defensive medicine, where you're a doctor and you're afraid if you don't recommend something that at some point the uh, patient may attempt to sue you uh, due to the lack of tort reform. There's all kinds of medical malpractice lawsuits and the possibility of, look, you know, you know, you might eventually win this case, but it's going to cost you a bundle. It's going to be cheaper for us to settle. I mean, as soon as Obama went off on that tangent, he kind of suggested that, you know, the problems in our healthcare system are not, as I've, you know, you and I have discussed many times, good, fast, or cheap, pick any two. Eventually, you end up sacrificing either speed or availability or cost at some point. It's just really, this is a incontrovertible problem. And there is no magic bullet, uh, despite what you may have heard about, oh, I love the system up in Canada. Well, yeah, you know, systems where the government runs the healthcare are generally great as long as you don't have an obscure health problem. If you have an obscure health problem, because they put all their money and all their resources and they focus everything on the most common problems, which is great if you only have the most common problems. If you have a rare problem, you are in deep doo-doo because the system is not designed to take care of you and your needs. Also, by the way, long waiting line, when people think everything is free, they're much more likely to try to partake of it. So deeply frustrating. I'm glad the AMA is taking this stance on this. Maybe this represents them learning their lesson 
from the Obamacare experience. But honestly, I think I wish they would have learned it as soon as the president started speculating about the nefarious tonsillectomies going on. Well, that's a good point. And I'm not sure that that 53-47 margin suggests that they really have learned their lesson. I don't think the medical students make up that big of a chunk of the AMA. I could be wrong in that regard. But you'd think they would have learned their lesson by now. Most of the people that got coverage, or at least a huge chunk of them, got added to Medicaid, which uh, means they don't get the the best care. There's a lot of providers that won't even see Medicaid, much less uh, Medicare patients, because of the reimbursement rates being so awful. So guess what? If everybody's on government care, your reimbursement rates are really going to stink. And uh, good luck making a profession and paying off those loans in any sort of efficient manner, uh, much less uh, the quality of care once... uh, more and more people yeah. don't even want to get into the business anymore because of the system. We will eliminate overpayments and set up a system where everyone underpays. <laughs> and that, that will work for everyone, except the doctors. That sounds like a stable system. Yeah. yeah, you'll totally want to drop tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of dollars for each year in medical school and deal with that once you're done. Jim, speaking of being in crippling debt, whether it's our government as a result of potentially going down the road of single payer, or medical students that'll make me almost impossible to pay off those loans if we go down this road, uh, we have people who are going to need money. If you're carrying revolving debt, that means you're not paying off your card every month and could be paying thousands in interest every year that you don't have to. With Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed-rate personal loans. No trips to a bank, no high-interest credit cards. Just go to LendingClub.com, tell them about yourself and how much you want to borrow, pick the terms that are right for you, and if you're approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. Lending Club is the number one peer-to-peer lending platform with more than $35 billion in loans issued. All you have to do, go to LendingClub.com slash Martini. Check your rate in minutes and borrow up to $40,000. That's LendingClub.com slash Martini. LendingClub.com slash Martini. All loans made by WebBank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. All right, Jim. In stark contrast to those who are facing crippling debt due to many years in medical school or some other reason, let's talk about people who have recently made a lot of money. In fact, one in particular. His name's James Holzhauer. People know him from winning 32 straight contests on Jeopardy and amassing nearly $2.5 million. Uh, He almost broke the all-time earnings record on Jeopardy that was set by Ken Jennings in less than half the number of episodes it took Jennings to get there. But now Mr. Holzhauer is facing reality. This is from Yahoo Finance. Holzhauer's winnings will put him in the highest federal income tax bracket for 2019, which means he'll pay tax on at least a portion of his winnings at a 37% rate. As a result, he'll likely have to pay around $850,000 of his winnings to the IRS. Since Holzhauer is married, we use the tax rate schedules for taxpayers filing a joint return. Even though Holzhauer lives in Nevada, where they don't have an income tax, he will also owe California income tax because Jeopardy is taped in the Golden State. California's highest marginal tax rate is 12.3%. However, there is an additional 1% surcharge on all taxable income over a million dollars that's imposed to help pay for mental health services in California. For a joint filer, that comes to around $288,000 in California taxes. When you add it all up, the combined federal and state income tax on Holzhauer's winnings comes to about $1.138 million, or approximately 46% of his winnings. 
That leaves a little over $1.32 million that he'll actually get to keep for himself. And so the takeaway for Yahoo Finance is, hey, if you win big on a game show, just remember you got to pay a lot of that in taxes. I think our takeaway as conservatives, Jim, is that's ridiculous that he has to pay that much in taxes after performing with such excellence over an extended period of time. For that matter, you know, so uh, I'm sure Trebek likes where I assume it's is it Los Angeles where it's taped? It's Hollywood somewhere, yeah. Hollywood, yeah. Okay, so you know, I assume he likes where he's living, but um, you know, there are there are other states, other nice cities. <laughs> so right across the border, you know, you know, Las Vegas is a lot of fun, and that you, know, you got to look much lower to you know, rates. Um, now it's interesting. You're, you're starting to see this kind of criteria uh, start to become factors. I remember the argument about when. Um, well, LeBron James was going from the Miami Heat back to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, his income tax is going up significantly because Florida has no income tax. He's now in Los Angeles, so God help him. Um, <laughs> well, he may need help in other ways considering his injuries and things like that. But beyond that, you know, like, if you're a celebrity, at some point this probably starts to enter your decision-making. Now, this may not be uh, the, the biggest factor or something like that, but you know, does it irk me that at some point the New York Jets are probably going to lose out on one to the Miami Dolphins? Because the take-home pay will be significantly different because of that. I would argue that the taxes are too darn high in California. The taxes are too darn high in New York. And, you know, you think about this. You look at the states that don't have income tax. It's not like Florida doesn't have problems. Florida man generates plenty of problems on their own. They have hurricanes (laughs) that come all the time. They probably don't have to buy snowplows. Okay, there are certain expenditures the state's not going to have. And, yeah, they're probably going to get a lot more vacationing, people going to Disney World, people going to the beaches, things like that. Um, they have snowbirds, as they call them. They end up uh, uh, having second homes. And I understand that, you know, where, where Florida makes up all their taxation is in taxing second homes. But people who don't live there don't complain because they don't legally live there. and They don't vote in your elections. But it's just an observation here that like, you know, these different re- taxation rates in states have big impacts on people's take home pay. And you can start to understand why, you know, maybe maybe Jeopardy is never going to make the move. But when you start seeing tech companies move from California to Texas or moving to other southern states that are uh, right to work, that have lower income tax rates, that have lower corporate tax rates, gee, you, can you blame anybody for doing that? And uh, California has been basically counting on the fact that, oh, we've got really wonderful weather. If you have a farm, you can't move that particularly easily. If you have a mine, you can't move that particularly easily. Well, uh, you know, look, if you've got a tech company, you, you can move your workers, you can move your op- base of operations, and lo and behold, you end up paying a heck of a lot less in taxes. And, uh, you know, you and your workers are a lot happier that way. Greg, when it comes to the most aggravatingly taxed state in the union, um, I suppose the question that they would ask in Jeopardy would be, what is California? <laughs> Absolutely right. I just love to see somebody, when it comes time for a daily double, go, yeah, I think I'll go with 3000 You know what? I'm going to lose half of that in taxes. Let's just shoot the moon. Let's go for it all. <laughs> It's the government's money anyway. (laughs) All right. Let's move on to our crazy martini. And I believe now for the second time this week, we've got a double-fisted crazy martini. And both of them deal with Democrats in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yesterday was primary day, Jim, as you may well know. Uh, In the county where I live, we had a Republican firehouse primary several weeks ago. So it was only Democrats on the ballot yesterday. And as we look around northern Virginia, some... 
moderate to liberal Democrats got defeated in primaries by some absolutely crazy Democrats. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, as we go forward here. But two stories in particular are standing out. Let's go down to the Richmond area. This is Fox News. A Virginia Democrat who was accused in 2014 of having sex with his teenage secretary that he later married won the Democratic primary on Tuesday for the state's 16th Senate district. Joe Morrissey, a former state legislator, defeated incumbent Senator Rosalind Dance by over 10 points despite Governor Ralph Northam endorsing her in the final weekend of the campaign. Morrissey's victory in the primary comes even though he was sentenced four years ago and jailed over a scandal involving a minor. He was in his 50s at the time while the minor was 17. She worked at his law office. Despite denying the wrongdoing, he pleaded guilty in 2015 to a misdemeanor contributing to the delinquency of a minor and admitted that prosecutors had enough evidence for a conviction. He spent six months in jail for the crime but managed to continue serving in the state legislature during the sentence. Republicans immediately jumped on Morrissey's victory in the primary, tweeting a mock congratulatory note and adding, you'll fit right in with Justin Fairfax. He, of course, is the lieutenant governor who's accused by two different women of sexual assault. And you heard that uh, Ralph Northam made an endorsement of the incumbent in this race. And that leads us to the second part of our crazy martini, Free Beacon. Virginia Democrats caught accepting money from Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, even after many of them called for him to resign, have remained silent on the contributions, earning sharp critiques from their Republican colleagues. The contributions from Northam's political action committee to 13 Democratic candidates for the state legislature were discovered by the Washington Free Beacon last Friday. Seven of the 13 candidates who took money from Northam called on him to resign after the photo of a man in blackface standing with a man in a Ku Klux Klan outfit was discovered on Northam's medical school yearbook page. None of the 13 candidates have responded to emails and phone calls regarding the contributions and whether they plan to keep them. Further down in the article, it points out a Washington Post piece where Ralph Northam is now reemerging. He's talking about a special session on gun control. He's doing public events now when he's signing legislation that he actually likes. And so... We're just all going to pretend that it never happened, Jim. In years to come, Greg, they're going to talk about that that yearbook photo like it's the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> I saw it once, but then it disappeared and no one ever saw it again. No one ever spoke of it again. It was just... So by the way, if you're wondering about Joe Morrissey, I guess maybe the electorate looks a little more uh, generously upon this if you actually, after getting caught fooling around with a 17-year-old girl, you do marry her, you do end up having three kids, and you know this is not... Maybe the traditional outcome when you see a middle-aged politician running around with a 17-year-old reached out to one of my Virginia Republican guys. And he's like, look, that even under the best of circumstances, that district is not remotely close to winnable. And there's a part of me would kind of say, could we try? Could we just, <laughs> just put somebody somebody's name on there that just happens to live in the district? And maybe if you just give the voters an option, look, look what, what's the worst that could happen? He loses? But the other thing also worth noting is that Republican turnout crushed the Democrats on the House side, according to my Virginia Republican guy. So they are moderately optimistic heading into the November elections. Uh, look, you, you obviously you can overinterpret primary results or something like that. But uh, look, if you're a Virginia Republican, I think you have to look at the Virginia Democratic Party and think of them as a target rich environment heading into November. Yeah, it's best case scenario for Republicans in Virginia, and I use that term advisedly uh, because there's no statewide races this time, so it's going to be a little bit harder to nationalize it. It's all state Senate, state House of Delegates, and uh, county level and, and lower than that. So uh, it's going to be hard to nationalize. It's an odd-numbered year, so 
there's not that many races in different states going on. And the, the races that will be getting attention, probably Louisiana governor, Kentucky governor, things like that, uh, should probably drown out what's happening uh, at the smaller level in Virginia. But uh, basically, Republicans, if you get slaughtered this year, the future in Virginia looks pretty bleak. So hopefully those numbers from the primary hold up. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, you'd like to think that for every Republican enclave or neighborhood in every district you're contesting, your message can and should be, this is the only chance you get to rebuke Northam. And in fact, for that matter, you could probably say, and Fairfax, and Herring. <laughs> since, since they're all pretty scandal-ridden, but uh, you know, just basically make the message of, look, you know, there, the state legislature did not do anything um, the media certainly, you know, lost interest in it. Virginia Democrats, you know, demanded his resignation. And then he said, so Ralph Northam said no. And Virginia Democrats, by and large, said, oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> and if you think that deserves a, you know, that this kind of thing is not, you know, in an ordinary era, this would be considered as really scandalous, really embarrassing, and the sort of thing. Like, also, people keep forgetting, he said he was in the picture. <laughs> And now all of a sudden it's become the Zapruder film where people are looking at it from all kinds of different angles. And, you know, who could be under, look, you know, the idea uh, the, the school did their three month review and absolutely couldn't give us absolutely nothing new information other than the fact that people knew about this photo and just chose not to mention it because, you know, Ralph Northam could end up being governor. Look, if there's ever going to be any consequence for this, you know, November is the opportunity. Otherwise, the state as a whole will say, yeah, you dressed up like a Klansman. Eh, it happens. You wear blackface. <laughs> eh, it happens. Oh, Jim, as we've talked about uh, uh, excessively, probably, uh, over the past few months, the reason he's still in office is because the other two that would step up to replace him, the lieutenant governor and the attorney general, are also uh, tainted by scandal. So therefore, he's safe uh, by some sort of transitive property of equality. And the interesting part about Virginia, of course, is that there's a one-term limit. You can't run for re-election, but you can come back four years later. And because of all the problems afflicting the current three state office holders, Terry McAuliffe has made noise that he is very seriously looking at running again in 2021. So you thought we were done with them? Maybe not. You and I have made fun of Terry McAuliffe a lot over the years, but I'm going to give him credit for two things, uh, two things which he really stands out. One, I can't believe I'm saying this, but out of the last three governors, Terry McAuliffe is the least scandal-ridden and embarrassing. <laughs> you want to talk about like things that I never thought I would say? There's that one. And the second thing is, I under, as I understand it, Greg, Terry McAuliffe, as of this moment, is the only Democrat in the entire country who's not running for president. <laughs> okay, exaggerate slightly, but you know, the, he's the only one of very few who looked at the possibility of running, thought about it seriously. Tested the waters, so to speak, took the temperature, figured out that people were not all that interested and said, "Okay, I'm not going to do it. You know, like a a genuine, non-sarcastic. Good for you, Terry McAuliffe. Wow. (laughs) You saw there was no demand and you didn't force it. You you didn't pull an Eric Swalwell. By the way, I just want to let all of our listeners know, according to what I saw on Twitter yesterday, (laughs) apparently in 24 straight polls, Eric Swalwell has gotten a zero. (laughs) I don't mean 0%. I mean, no one has ever mentioned his name to a pollster when asked, who are you voting for? Or who do you prefer in the Democratic primary? Do you realize what this means, Greg? (laughs) What? If one person out there tells a pollster, I want to vote for Irving Schmidlap, then Irving Schmidlap will do better than Eric Swellwell, overcoming the minor handicap of not existing. (laughs) 
So I, I, this is my ask, my request to you listeners. If by some chance, either a national poll, we have listeners in Iowa, listeners in New Hampshire, if anybody out there ever gets called by a poll and said, preferably an open, open answer question, but if they say maybe he's in the other category, but ideally at some point make clear to the pollster, my choice, the 2020 Democratic primary is Irving Schmidlap. And the moment he shows up on that, <laughs> I'm going to throw a party. I'll probably do a, a between two scorpions book giveaway to that person or something like that. Jim, better an empty seat than an empty suit. So we'll uh, we'll see. See you That's tomorrow. Another great slogan. <laughs> see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. Again, the book Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And don't forget to visit our good friends over at Lending Club, LendingClub.com/slash/Martini. And tune in again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.